Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, November 1st by lead pastor Rod Heppel. It's the seventh message in our fall 2020 sermon series entitled God of Wonder. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. So we are about two-thirds of the way through our God of Wonder sermon series, and today we're going to be talking about the nature of God. The nature of God as being a triune being, three persons in one being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call this the Trinity. So buckle up and join me as we go through this together. If the purpose of our sermon series is to learn about God, to get to know God, then we uh, want to worship him more fully. That's the goal of this. So we need to talk about the nature of God so that we better understand him. And maybe it should have been the first message in this sermon series because of its central importance to our faith and to our salvation, obviously to who God is. If we were to remove the Trinity from Christianity, our whole faith would disintegrate because the work of of creation required the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The work of redemption required the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the end, the consummation of all things will be brought about by the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our entire faith is built around a triune God. His triune nature is woven throughout salvation. In God's plan of salvation, we have the Father judging sin. We have the Son paying the price for sin. We have the Holy Spirit empowering the Son to live a sinless life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us, for our sin. So in order for our God to truly be our Savior, he must be all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, at the same time, one being distinct from each other, living in unity. That's what John 1, 1 teaches us. Uh, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So you see this unity and this distinction at the same time. Now, Jesus, speaking in John seventeen three to his first disciples, said this. Now, this is eternal life. Oh, that should make us just stop right there. What is he going to say next about eternal life? Well, this is what he says. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life seems to be a pretty significant thing, right? And according to this verse, knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ is eternal life. In John or 1 John 5, it says it like this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if eternal life is wrapped up in this knowing God and Jesus Christ, then it's pretty important that we get it right, that we would know our God as creator, redeemer, savior, and Lord. So let's begin in the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament affirms very clearly the oneness of God, that he is the one and only true God, or as it's often put in the Old Testament, the true and living God. There's a Hebrew prayer called the Shema. You're probably familiar with it. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the question arises, if God is one, then how can he be three in one? The triune nature of God did not become clear in the Old Testament. There were hints and clues that God's triune nature uh, wasn't 
maybe exactly what people thought it would be, but it only came clear when Jesus Christ came to earth, the incarnation, God becoming human, and the whole story of Jesus. That's when it becomes clear who God is in his completion. So here's an example of one of those hints at the nature of God being more than what the people at that time would have understood through the, the Shema, the prayer that they prayed. It's in Genesis 1:26 where it says that God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, Elohim is the Hebrew word for God, but it's a plural form. The singular form for God in Hebrew is El. So the question comes, why the use of the plural form for God if God is one? Even Jewish scholars wondered about this. Why was the use of the plural form used there for God? Why was it not written something like this? I, I want to make man in my image, in my likeness. But rather, it was in our image, in our likeness. So there were clues in the Old Testament of the unique nature of God's oneness that eventually would be revealed in time. And that's often how God operates with a number of doctrines that were alluded to in the Old Testament and then were brought into clarity because of Jesus in the New Testament. It's called progressive revelation. That God unfolded his full plan in the perfect timing, but that's a topic for another day. Now, Jesus is the watershed point of understanding the divine nature of God as it relates to the Trinity. Everything hinges on Christ and the claims that he made to deity, the actions that he performed that proved that he was the God of the universe who created it all. So one example of Jesus claiming to be God is found in John 8, verse 58. It's a reference we often use. It's kind of like a trump card in demonstrating Jesus' claim to be God. Simply put, Jesus takes the name of the Old Testament God, the personal name that God gave to Moses, and he applies it to himself. So in Exodus 3, God was calling Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, and, and Moses just wasn't quite too sure that the people would believe that God had sent him to do this. So this is how he puts it in Exodus 3. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that's God's personal name that he calls himself, that he gives to Moses. And in, in John uh, chapter 8, when the religious leaders are resisting Jesus' teaching and his miracles and his claims and all that kind of thing, Jesus says this, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. They were going to stone him for blasphemy because he uses the personal name of God. He calls himself the I am. So you can do a complete study on the deity of Christ in the New Testament, in the Gospels, all the different ways in which Jesus demonstrates that he is the I am of the Old Testament, that he is truly Yahweh. But that's more than what our study can cover today. Now, directly linked to the work of Jesus in proving his divinity is also the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, who's attributed with these same kinds of qualities that only can be concluded that he too is God. And probably the clearest example of this is found in Acts 5, where uh, there's this sobering story of Ananias and Sapphira, who thought that they could deceive or lie to the apostles, and in so doing, lie to God. Now, you'll have to go read the story if you want all the details, but the point I'm making from it is that Peter, when bringing judgment to this couple, equates the Holy Spirit to God. So in verse 3, Peter says, this is of Acts 5, 
Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse uh, 4, Peter goes on to say, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings, but to God. So Peter claims that Ananias lied not only to the Holy Spirit, but to God. And in so doing, he's equating the two as one being. To Peter, the Holy Spirit is God. Not God the Father, nor God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit. In order to come to an understanding of the Trinity, you need to look at the whole of Scripture, not just one part here or there. And when you do, you will see that it reveals to us that this God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct in their personality, distinct in their role and their function, but united as one being. And therein lies the complexity and the mystery of the nature of God. We live in these tensions as Christians. Some groups over the years have claimed that the orthodox position of the church on the doctrine of the Trinity is not irrational. It's illogical. I once remember being in conversation with a person who uh, did not believe in the Trinity, but did believe in God, who called me illogical for believing that God is three persons in one being. I explained my position that I did not believe in three gods, as they were charging against me, uh, but that rather I believed in one God who had revealed himself three separate personalities within this one Godhead as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How could that be, they claimed. And they exclaimed. And you know, out of fairness, that's a good question. How could it be? Well, it could be based on the fact that God is God and not like us in this respect. That he is far greater than we are and that his makeup is different than anything that we have to compare it to here on earth. And while I don't claim for a moment that it's not challenging to try and grasp the Trinity, I can either choose to trust in what God has revealed about himself in Scripture or I can tear out 50% of the pages and uh, not believe the claims of Christ and the works that he did to prove his divinity or what the New Testament has to say about the Holy Spirit and his divinity, which is kind of what these groups do. They focus on certain verses in the Bible, but not all of them. So, to be clear, we wouldn't dream up the Trinity if God hadn't revealed it. Why would we? The Trinity is the honest conclusion of the whole of Scripture and what it teaches on who God is. And you wouldn't reason your way to this understanding, but it is as God has revealed himself to us. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's God's makeup. And the better that we get to know him, the richer our relationship with him will be and the greater our worship of him will be. That's why this is important. So if you're watching today and you're wondering what Christians believe and if they believe in three gods, the clear answer is no, we don't. We believe in one God. We are what is called monotheists. Mono means one and theist means God. We do not have three gods. We have one God whose makeup is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's a diagram that helps bring clarity to the Christian understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you can see the term God, which is right there in the center, Elohim, right there in the middle, which, by the way, when used throughout Scripture, is most often a reference to God the Father, like when, it, when Jesus refers to God, and he's referring to his Father at that point. So you can see the lines and the relationship. Uh, lines on the inside of the diagram show the unity or the oneness of the Trinity. 
So you have the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But then you can also see the lines on the outside of the diagram that show the distinction within the Trinity. So you can see that the Father is not the Son, and he is not the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father, and is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and is not the Son. The three persons make up the one being. So that little diagram can help us. While the Bible reveals that God is one, it does not say that he is three separate gods, but rather that there is a distinction within the unity. Now that's vitally important to keep clear. Um, if we believe in three gods, quite frankly, that's basically polytheism, which is what exactly the Bible denounces. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in the one true and living God who happens to have a nature that is different than what we understand things to work and operate here on earth. While there may be corresponding ideas to our world, to our world that, that does help us understand the idea of the Trinity, they're not really fully adequate. We don't quite have the one thing that goes, there, that's exactly how God is. Here are a couple of illustrations. Water, H2O. It has three different states, solid, liquid, and gas, and yet it's still H2O, water, no matter which state. Or maybe you've heard of the three dimensions in our universe. This is the illustration that C.S. Lewis used in his book, Mere Christianity. And he says it like this. If you're using only one dimension, you could draw only a straight line. If you are using two dimensions, you could draw a figure, say a square. And a square is made up of four straight lines. Now, a step further. If you have three dimensions, you can build what we call a solid body say a cube, a thing like a dice or a lump of sugar, and a cube is made up of six squares. Do you see the point, he asks. A world of one dimension would be a straight line. In a two-dimensional world, you still get straight lines, but many lines make one figure. In a three-dimensional world, you still get figures, but many figures make, uh, make a solid body. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. So how does this make sense as relationship to God? His point is that the Christian understanding of the Trinity of God involves the same principle. On the human level, which is rather simple, one person is one being. And any two persons are two separate beings. But on the divine level, you still find personalities, but there you find them combined in new ways, which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. So in God's dimension, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. So that was Lewis's illustration. Now, he admits the fact that we can't fully conceive of a being like this, especially in the realm in which we live. But just because we don't understand how that being operates or exists doesn't mean that it's not true because it's in God's realm. Why should we think that God could not have a makeup that is beyond our world and maybe even beyond our reasoning? I remember being in a theology class at Briarcus Bible College and Dr. Henry Budd was teaching on the Trinity. He used an illustration that I can't completely remember exactly how it went, but it was an example of a tennis ball. And, and he had somehow explained that it had these different dimensions to it, yet remained a ball. That kind of an idea anyway. It's a very common kind of analogy. 
And a girl in the class put up her hand and she said, yes, but if you were to drop that ball in a blender and you were to turn the blender on and blend it up, it would no longer be a ball. To which Dr. Budd replied without hesitation, yes, but then God is not a tennis ball. And I think that there's something very profound there. There's no perfect illustration of the Trinity that we are going to be able to put into our own experience here. Now, there's some corresponding ideas that maybe give us a glimpse. And I really think that this idea of three dimensions that Lewis was talking about is helpful. If all you ever knew were two dimensions and a person came along and began to speak of a third dimension, you'd think that they were crazy. But so be it. God is three persons in one being. But in the end, all of our illustrations fall short. Now, over the years, various groups have tried to sidestep the challenge of understanding God's nature. Uh, they wrestle with the same scriptures we do, and they just have tried to find a different answer to understand God other than the three-in-one type idea, but it lands them in error. Have, have you ever tried to solve one problem, but in so doing, you create another problem? That's exactly what has happened over the years with a few different groups that have tried to resolve the tension that exists within the idea of the Trinity, a tension that only we as humans experience. Now, here are some of the attempts over the years. One is to say that God is all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just not at the same time. So he is the Father in heaven, and then he becomes the Son on earth, and then when Jesus ascends back to heaven, he returns as the Holy Spirit. So he is all three, just not at once. This is called modalism. Maybe you've heard of that. It, they call it that because God takes on different modes. And a third century bishop named Sabellius taught this. And sometimes it's called Sabellianism. There you go. Big word. But in the New Testament, we see examples of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being present at the same time. Uh, like at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 where it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So the three are present together at the same time. Now there's many other examples like this in the New Testament. Jesus praying in the upper room. Who's he praying to? In the garden uh, of Gethsemane or on the cross? The Son and the Father are in dialogue together. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that the Father was reconciling the world to us while the Son was active in that salvation. Uh, it's put like this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So God the Father was active in our salvation while Christ was doing his work on the cross. The chair in heaven was not empty. The second errant attempt that I'm going to mention is called Arianism, which believes that Jesus is not actually God. Simply put, he's a created being, a kind of lesser God, but not God Almighty, uh, God Almighty who created everything. It's called Arianism because it's named after a fourth century bishop by the name of Arius, and he argued this point. Now, this would be the view that I had in mind when I said earlier that you have to tear like 50% of the pages of scripture uh, out of your Bible because they focus on the humanity of Jesus and they downplay the divine nature of Jesus in the various places where that's shown. Um, they just simply believe that Jesus is not God. But if that were true, then Jesus would be a liar, a deceiver, and not our savior. Now, there's many challenges with this view. 
like I said, they try to resolve one problem, but when they try to resolve that problem, they just create another one. So in making Jesus less than God, they cannot worship him. For if Jesus is not God, then you cannot worship him, right? Only God can be worshiped. But in the New Testament, we see that Jesus received worship from his followers on a number of different occasions. Again, probably the clearest example of this is after the resurrection when Thomas met Jesus and Jesus was alive and Thomas worshipped him. You probably know the story well. It's found in John 20. Jesus resurrected from the dead, had appeared to the disciples, but Thomas was not with them. When the disciples told Thomas, he just plain wouldn't believe them. I would have nothing to do with it unless he could see it with his own eyes. Okay, we appreciate that about Thomas. So a week later, the disciples are together again. This time, Thomas is with them in this particular room, and Jesus appears, and he goes straight to Thomas, and he says to him, in John 20, verse 27, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now at this point, a full stop. Jesus should have said, hold on there, Thomas. I'm not God. You should know better than to worship me as God. How could you make such a grievous error of mistaken identity? He should have stopped them and said, no, 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 Thomas. You, you can't worship me like that because I too am a created being. I'm not that being you have in mind. Now you may wonder, well, why are you making such a big deal about this, Rod? Well, it's because in the Old Testament, God made a big deal about who worshipped him or who worshipped others. And he didn't share his glory with anyone else because he was the only true and living God. He was the one who created it all. Therefore, he was the only one who should be worshipped. It can't be shared. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. And at the top of the list of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is the centrality of worshipping God alone. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now you hear that a lot in the Old Testament. When God says he's a jealous God, it does not mean that he's petty like we are in our jealousy simply means that it's a reflection of the truth that God alone is the creator of it all. Therefore, only God is worthy of worship. That's the point. If Jesus was not God, if he was just a lesser created being, he should have stopped Thomas right there in his tracks and said, no, Thomas, you got it wrong. In fact, Thomas, you should know better. You know the Shema. Worship the Lord your God alone. After all, that's exactly what happened when the angel um, when the Apostle John bowed down before the angel in Revelation 19, the angel stopped him. It goes like this. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at, the feet, at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters that hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. You know, if the angel corrected John because he was a created being and not God, then Jesus should have corrected Thomas that he was not God but a created being. But of course, he is God and he is worthy of worship and that's why we worship him. So the third errant idea that I want to bring to you this morning is this understanding that God is uh, tritheistic, three gods. 
this is where God is the Father and God is the Son and God is the Holy Spirit. They are each God, but they're not one being. Okay, so they're just three separate gods. But this simply is a version of polytheism, and the Bible, quite frankly, dismisses that from beginning to end. So where does this leave us? The Bible teaches that God is one being who's revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all at once, all at the same time. There is never a time in eternity past that God has not been the Father. There is never a time in eternity past that God has not been the Son. There is never a time in eternity past that God has not been the Holy Spirit. He is a communal being. In 1 John 4, verse 16, it says, God is love. Now, this is only true if God exists in community, in a unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He can't be love as you've never had anyone to love. So there's much that I could still say today on the Trinity, but we don't have time to explore it further. Where I want us to land today is on one application that's coming out of the triune nature of God. And it's this idea that God is love, therefore we are to love. Uh, to love God and to love one another. So here's where I want to end today. I want us to focus on this idea of God being love as we come to the communion table to remember Christ's great sacrifice for us. Pastor Tim is going to share a bit of a reflection on this God of love and that ultimate expression that Jesus did in giving his life for us. And then he's going to make that application into our own lives. So let's listen to this point of application before we take the bread and the cup in remembrance of our God and our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we get to take communion today, and Pastor Rod has been talking about how God is a trinity, how he is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to read a passage that will focus our hearts and our minds on the communion table that also reflects the triunity of God. So it's found in 1 John 4. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So God is love. And God is and was love before he ever created anything, before he created you and before he created me. God has always been love. And in his very nature, his triune nature, he has been a community of love. That's the only way he could actually be love. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father and the Son, this community of love within the Godhead. And some theologians refer to this as the perichoresis. It's, it's the, the, the inner working, the inner movement of God's being, this community of love. And some have referred to it even as the inner dance of love within the Godhead. It's this amazing, mind-blowing picture of the love of God. 
Now, you might feel like me where that's, that's great, that's amazing, that's awe-inspiring, that's wonderful, but here I am stuck down here and I kind of feel like an outsider looking in. And I remember when I was in middle school or high school, there were uh, high school dances and uh, I, I was too cool for them. You know, I would just pass by, I wouldn't sign up, I wouldn't go in. And maybe deep down, I was actually just insecure. Insecure that, you know, if I put myself out there, went into the dance, no one would actually want to dance with me. Or if they did, they would see how terrible of a dancer I actually am. I was on the outside of those looking in on the fun and on the love. And I think sometimes in our relationship with God, we can feel that. We're on the outside. We're looking in. We're not invited into the dance. We don't want to go there because look at me. Look at what I've done. I, I've, I've sinned. I'm unworthy. I'm not worthy to be drawn in. I'm insecure. I don't want you to see who I am. Look at what I've done in my past. Look at what I've done in this past week. What I've thought. What I've felt in my heart. All of the horrible things. Look at the past hour, the past minute. God, you don't want to know me. You don't want me in your dance. You don't want me in your love. I'm on the outside looking in. And on the outside is where I belong. But this table, the communion table, reminds us that God actually didn't just stay within himself. He created, and then he also reached out to his creation. We're broken. We're broken from sin. We're broken from the fall. But this passage said that Jesus came to earth to pay for our sins. Love actually opened the door, flung the doors open, and and invited us into the dance and said, you're loved. I'm coming for you. I'm going to pay for your sins, all those failings, all those insecurities, all those weaknesses. I'm actually going to die for them. I'm going to pay for them. I'm going to show you exactly what love looks like. The greatest manifestation of love, Jesus dying on the cross for us to tell us you're forgiven and you are loved. It's amazing. And so when we partake of of the bread and of the cup, we remember Jesus actually died for me. Jesus actually loves me. He wants to pay my debt. And I know in all of my relationships, I fail with with my spouse, with my kids, with my parents, with my friends, with my church. I fail at love. I actually don't know how to love. I'm not like the Godhead where I'm constantly others-seeking and and perfect eternal love. I fail. I'm self-centered. I'm a broken person. But Jesus has reached out and said, come. Come into the dance. Come enjoy the love that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. Enjoy that love through the Spirit. You're invited in. We're no longer outsiders. We're invited in to the love of God. And the communion table represents that and reminds us of that. And so, if you're a believer, maybe this is a time to just remember once again, I'm loved. I don't have to believe all the lies out there or in my mind that I'm not loved, that I'm unworthy, that no one could ever love me. No, that's false. By partaking this table, I remember Jesus loves me. So Jesus loves you. And if you're an unbeliever, maybe this is a time to, you know, not walk past the dance, not think you're too cool, but to, you know, allow God to invite you in. He is inviting you into a loving relationship with him. And so maybe this is a perfect time to reflect on that and to enter in, to go in to, to, the, to the Father's arms that are open wide, longing for you to return into his love. And so think about that and reflect on that as maybe you partake of communion for the first time. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, 
please check out sardisfellowship.com.